Welcome to this OLTV podcast series titled The Eastern Fathers on Involuntary Sin by Father Maximus of the Holy Resurrection Monastery in St. Nazianz, Wisconsin. This fourth episode covers St. John of Damascus, Part 1. This is now the third in our series of reflections on involuntary sin, seen through the lens of the theology, particularly of St. John of Damascus and his tradition, seen through the idea of the integrity of the natural, which is something we'll be looking at, uh, I think, in the next talk or the one after. But in this talk, we're really setting the stage for St. John of Damascus looking at the thought of his great predecessor, St. Maximus the Confessor. And now I'm talking about, in particular, a writer whose influence on the thought of St. Maximus is incalculable. The name of the writer is, well, we know him as in our church tradition as St. Dionysius the Areopagite. Today, scholars will usually call him Pseudo-Dionysius, because we are certain he was not, as um, he says he is in his writings, the disciple that St. Paul met at Athens, um, see Acts 17.34, he wrote rather under the pseudonym Dionysius, the Areopagite. In fact, the real identity of this author, we've no idea who he was. There have been many, many theories. His, his identity, in fact, is one of the most elusive mysteries of patristic scholarship. The best guess is that he was a Hellenic Syrian writer, he certainly wrote in Greek, probably from the Syrian world, Syrian Christian world, probably a bishop, although we don't know for certain. And he seems to have, write, have written his works in the later 5th or early 6th century. He may have been a disciple of the famous uh, Neoplatonist philosopher Proclus, from whose writings he quotes extensively, generally without attributing them to Proclus. But whoever he was, whoever he was, the writings of St. Dionysius, the Areopagite, have had an immense impact on the thought of Eastern Christians, especially as they have been taken up with such enthusiasm by figures like St. Maximus the Confessor, St. John of Damascus, St. Gregory Palamas, and others. The story I want to relate comes from the eighth epistle of St. Dionysius. Here's the story. I'll read it. When I was once in Crete, says Dionysius, a holy man named Carpus entertained me, and he told me of the following vision he had had. He said that when some one of the unbelievers had at one time grieved him. And his grief was that he had led astray to ungodliness a certain member of the church, whilst the days of rejoicing were still being celebrated for him. Let me interrupt there to explain what is going on here. As I say, St. Dionysius says, claims to be writing at the time of the apostles, the very earliest days of the church. And so the story here is of 
a bishop carpus, the head of a church, under persecution. He has baptized some, some believers, and some pagans have come, and even in the days during which the church was celebrating the baptism of these new believers, these pagans had convinced these newly baptized Christians to return to their pagan ways. That's the evil that these unbelievers had done, that these pagans had done. That is what Carpus is talking about. So that sets the stage for what comes next. You have to understand how profoundly uh, enraged and justifiably enraged Carpus is with what these pagans have done, angry at the pagans themselves, these people who had corrupted the faith of newly baptized Christians. And so Carpus prayed on behalf of those Christians who had been corrupted. And taking God the Savior as his fellow helper to convert the one and overcome the other by goodness, this is what he ought to have done, not having ceased to warn them so long as he lived. Now, in this frame of mind, one night, Carpus went to sleep, for it was evening, and at midnight, for he was accustomed at that appointed hour to rise of his own accord for the divine hymns, he arose. And not having enjoyed, undisturbed his slumbers, which were many and continually broken, and when he stood collected for the divine converse, prayer, he was vexed guiltily and displeased, saying, it was not just that godless men who pervert the straight ways of the Lord should live. And while saying that, he besought Almighty God by some stroke of lightning, suddenly without mercy, to cut short the lives of them both. But while saying this, he declared that he seemed to see a vision. Suddenly the house in which he stood, first torn asunder, and from the roof, divided in two in the midst, and a sort of gleaming fire before his eyes. For the place seen now under the open sky, borne down from the heavenly region close to him, and the heaven itself giving way, and upon the back of heaven, Jesus, with innumerable angels in the form of men, standing around him. This indeed he saw above, and himself marveled. But below, when Carpus had bent down, he affirmed that he saw the very foundation ripped in two, to a sort of yawning and dark chasm. And those very men, that is the pagans, that he had cursed, those very men that had been the cause of his rage, that had disturbed his sleep, those very men he saw standing before his eyes, within the mouth of the chasm, trembling, pitiful, only just not yet carried down by the mere slipping of the feet. And from below the chasm, serpents creeping up and gliding from underneath, around their feet, now contriving to drag them away, and weighing them down and lifting them up and again inflaming or irritating with their teeth or their tails, and all the time endeavoring to pull them into the yawning gulf. 
and that certain men also were in the midst cooperating with the serpents against these men, at once tearing and pushing and beating them down. And they seemed to be the, on the point of falling, partly against their will, partly by their will. And here, St. Dionysius uses precisely the formula of, that we know so well from our prayer texts. Ecusia, ke acusia. Partly voluntary and partly involuntary. Voluntary and involuntary. Partly against their will, partly by their will. Almost constrained by the evil and at the same time almost persuaded. And Carpus said that he himself was glad. Whilst looking below, he was forgetful of the things above. Further, that he was vexed and made light of it because they had not already fallen, and that he often attempted to accomplish the fact, and when he did not see, he was both irritated and cursed. And when with difficulty he raised himself, he saw the heaven again as he saw it before, and Jesus moved with pity at what was taking place standing up from his supra-celestial throne and descending to them, the men in the gaping chasm, descending to them, stretching a helping hand, and the angels cooperating with him, taking hold of the two men, one from one place and another from another, and the Lord Jesus said to Carpus, whilst his hand was yet extended, don't curse them. Strike at me in the future. For I am ready, even again, to suffer for the salvation of men. And this is pleasing to me, provided that other men do not commit sin. But see whether it is well for thee to exchange the dwelling in the chasm and with the serpents for that with God, and the good and the philanthropic angels and these, says Carpus, are the things which I heard myself and believe to be true. Now the insight that Carpus is given into the state of mind of the imperiled sinners, those pagan men, those men who had corrupted the faith of the newly baptized Christians, the insight that Carpus is given into their minds is most remarkable in this vision, this story of the vision by St. Dionysius. You recall that Carpus says they seem to be on the point of falling into the abyss partly by their will, partly against their will, almost constrained by the evil and at the same time persuaded. Now given the horrific description of what awaited these men if they did fall into the chasm, it's difficult to imagine how they could be in two minds about their fate. But despite the terror beneath, there is a part of each suspended sinner that actually wants to fall, or that is even persuaded that they ought to fall. I think here there is a tremendous psychological insight into the minds of all of us sinners. And this is, I think, so important in the thought of the Greek fathers. 
We don't sin because we're wicked people. We sin because we sin because somehow we have become convinced of an error. We have been persuaded by the tempters, be it the tempters, the demons tempting us, or our own instincts corrupted by error, that we are persuaded that the sin we do not want to do is the thing we ought to do. Persuaded. And so our mind is clouded. Our will is corrupted by the darkness we find ourselves in. It's, clear, it's difficult to think of a clearer dramatization of what the Father saw as the tragedy of the descent of the soul. Carpus, in one sense, stands here for the traditional Greek belief in the Greek pagan belief, in the inexorable pull of necessity. For him, it's inevitable that the sinners must fall. Of course they must. But Dionysius insists that it is not so much necessity that is dragging them down, it is partly their own mistaken idea of what is good. They are almost persuaded that hell is the place for them. There is a partly voluntary propulsion toward a misconceived good. Their fall is occasioned by a kind of misapplied exercise of their share of divine love. A misapplied exercise of their nature, their very nature. The sinners are not merely constrained by evil, they are almost persuaded by it. So their fall is not simply a function of inevitability, it is also a kind of expression of self or at least an expression of self-understanding. And were this the vision of a pagan Greek, the tragedy would be unresolved. But because it is the vision of a Christian, it is resolved. The tragedy is resolved. How? In the person of Jesus. The person of Jesus, in the vision of Carpus, Jesus descends into the very mouth of hell to reclaim the two sinners. It is here what uh, the Neoplatonic tradition that St. Dionysius inherits would call a proodos in Greek, a divine procession or a divine manifestation of love. Dionysius would call this divine erotic love, the love that draws God even out of himself, if such a thing could be imagined. A descending love, a kenotic love, a self-emptying love, as St. Paul would put it. This descending love in the one who can say of himself, I am ready to suffer again. The fall of the men in this vision was voluntary in part, it was a genuine freedom. It was a genuinely free expression of themselves. But it was mixed with 
real necessity. The descent of Jesus is pure freedom, but only the appearance of necessity. And it is pure freedom, not because Jesus could have chosen to do other things, but chose to do this instead. It's pure freedom because it is the pure expression of divine love. Divine love is itself, when it reaches out to grasp the hands of sinners who return that grasp and draw them out from the mouth of hell. The purity of this freedom comes from the fact that it is a fitting externalization of the internal energia, the energy of God's love, the God who is love. It is the final victory of love that resolves every hint of tragedy. I've thrown around this word Neoplatonism a few times, and there's only so much time I can give to, to uh, unwrapping what that means. But suffice for my purposes to say that the writings of St. Dionysius, the Areopagite, are heavily indebted, as I've said, certainly to the Neoplatonist Proclus, but before him also to the great Neoplatonist philosopher of the 3rd century, Plotinus. Plotinus is an important figure in the development of an understanding of freedom, even though it is an understanding developed by a pagan philosopher, it was an important, it provided a, a way for Christians to really begin to reflect on the vision of freedom that Scripture presents to us. And certainly we see this in St. Dionysius. Plotinus helped St. Dionysius to understand how it might be possible philosophically to understand that a unique, utterly simple, infinite, and perfectly free God could interact with a world that is created and which abounds in not simplicity but complexity, that's not infinite but finite, not free but full of, at least partly, unfree creatures. It was precisely his difficulty with this problem that set St. Augustine on a different path one in which he ended up insisting on the absolute impossibility of creatures participating in the actual inner life of God. But for the Greek fathers, because they could read in Greek Plotinus, they could also see things differently, philosophically. So the Greek fathers could read in St. John's Gospel, God is love. They could read in St. John's Gospel the words of the Lord, where he promises that the Father and the Son will come into the heart of the Christian and make their dwelling here in us. They could read Scripture and they could express the truths of Scripture in philosophical language because they had already, the way had been paved for them by these most remarkable men like Plotinus and to some extent Proclus and others. Now, in Plotinus' writing, the key is what has been called the theory of the two acts. And here I'm relying especially on the scholarship of 
Dr. David Bradshaw in his book uh, was published, I think, in 2005. Um, the title is Aristotle East and West. The theory of the two acts. This is set out especially in the Aeneids 5.1 of Plotinus. And here I have to simplify the idea rather scandalously, I'm afraid. But very simply, Plotinus saw a way to understand how being and energy, usia, essence, and energia, operation, how to understand the relation between these two levels of reality. Every being, he says, possesses both an inner energy, an energia tis usias, and an outer energy, an energia ek tis usias. For example, take fire. The inner operation, the inner energia, the inner energy of fire is heat, Plotinus says. What is the outer operation, the outer energia, the outer energy of fire? It's the production of heat. Fire, which is heat, produces heat. We, being capable of experiencing heat, are capable of experiencing the essence of fire, its inmost reality, even though we ourselves cannot become fire, because we experience the fire that fire produces. Now, apply that to God. God's inmost essential being, in that inmost essential being, God is godly. God is simple. God is free. God is perfect. God is infinite. God is timeless. This is God's essence and God's inner energia, his inner operation. And it is something we can never know from the inside because we are not God by nature. We are not God. But just as fire produces fire, which we can experience, and in experiencing that produced fire, really understand what fire is. So too, in God's outward dealings with creatures, because he crafts his creation as being capable of receiving the outward effects, the forms of his being, we can participate in him through his energies. Because they are themselves emanations of God's inner being. So that when we experience simplicity, beauty, freedom, life, we truly can be said to participate in God himself through our participation in his external energy. Against this metaphysical backdrop, Plotinus offered a sustained reflection on freedom in Aeneas 6. Here he demonstrates how God, whom he calls the One, can be both absolutely free, while at the same time, as he says, so to speak, 
subject to a kind of necessity. This necessity is in fact identical with the will to good which is in turn the essence of the one. In the one, the Platinian God, will and desire to reach also energia, energies, coincide absolutely. It would not be too much to actually define the internal activity of the one as freedom in the fundamental sense of self-creation, self-possession. Just as fire produces heat, God produces freedom in himself, always free, without any shadow of constraint. And yet, Plotinus said, the language of exposition still requires us to speak of a kind of necessity which, as it were, compels even God to be God. Meaning both in terms of the inner dynamism of the one, his transcendent essence, and in the procession of the one into the expression of what in Platinian terms is the first hypostasis, which he calls intellect. Okay. This is very technical. And certainly the notion of declension of being is something you find in many, many Platonist writers, not just Plotinus. And at this point one might have expected the whole Platinian system to concede that the, the fact that in becoming external, the one encounters a lower order of being, demonstrates a kind of ultimate determinism. In other words, freedom, which is internal to the one, when made external, always ends up determining how everything else operates. That there is only in the one freedom, as soon as you leave the internal uh, being of the one and you enter into the universe beyond, you've left freedom behind. There can be no freedom in creation. This is the Greek view of the cosmos. Determined, not free. But Plotinus proposed something much more subtle and yet much more radical. He said, just as heat is produced by fire, and that heat is a true emanation of fire in the heart of fire, so the godliness God produces really is God himself made real in the world of creation. All beings produced by procession down the chain of being from the one, all beings are true images of the prototype because they have a natural capacity to relate to the one who has formed them. Put simply, if God is free and he creates creatures in his image, then those creatures must also be free, and they must be free with his freedom. The same freedom that God knows. And insofar as we participate in that freedom, we participate in God's freedom. There's a fundamental tension here. In one sense, being is drawn out of God. At each level, the intense desire of what is lower, that is, in, what is in creatures, for what is higher, compels the compassionate lover to give of himself. 
But simultaneously, this gift is an external energy that reflects the internal energy of God. Because God is love, He gives lovingly in accordance with love. And the key word here is the Latinian catchphrase, phonos, meaning freedom from envy, ungrudging. God gives ungrudgingly. Love gives itself and is never exhausted in the giving. Now, seen from the point of view of the higher, seen from God's point of view, what drives this entire system downward is not necessity. God doesn't need in the sense that he is constrained by some force outside of himself to give himself. He gives because it is in his nature to give. It's not necessity that drives him, but ungrudging love. It's only from below that the declension seems to involve necessity. We, it seems to us that God needs to give of himself. But from God's point of view, there's no necessity. It's simply love. The full implications of this dynamic view of procession, and it's a procession that then draws us, the creatures, back to him. So it's also a reversion an exitus and a reditus, as it becomes uh, known in medieval Western thought. This really comes, the, the full implications of this view really come into uh, sight further on in the chain of being when it comes to us, when it comes to the creation of individual souls. Here we confront the existential dilemma head on, head on. There is a sense in which individuation, the creation of individual souls, is a tragedy in Platinian terms. Because, as George LaRue points out for Plotinus, there is a contradiction between two inescapable demands. One, the necessity of wishing for inferior existence, and two, the impossibility of remaining in the intelligible in other words, God wants to be God. On the other hand, God wants to create creatures who are not God. And, and is driven, it seems to us, to want to create us. So it is as though there were a kind of, from our point of view, there is a kind of tension here. Matter, as it were, demands the fall of the soul. And the soul partly desires the fall, partly dreads it. And here we're re reminded especially again of that vision of Carpus, the almost persuaded nature of the fall. It's here that Plotinus seems most to want to distance himself from his Gnostic adversaries, who thought that the tragedy could be solved simply by eliminating matter. For Plotinus, however, the fall into matter and the emergence of individual souls was much more complex. Not just the imposition of the irrational on the rational, but also the compassion of souls for the unsold, of the higher for the lower, of God 
for what is not God. In other words, a participation in divine benevolence. The descent of soul into matter is at least in part a divine energia. It was not evil that drew soul into matter, for evil has no substance, but a misguided idea of the good. This is an idea that the Christian writers reading would certainly have uh, recognized as a true idea in Plotinus. A misguided idea of the good. So the way to recover the totality of the divinity of the many souls is not to wrench them from matter, as the Gnostics would have said, but to encourage their return to unity through the intellect, by purification, by ascesis and virtue. This is in Plotinus. Ascesis, virtue, purification. Again, you can see why the Greek fathers saw in him something that they could certainly mine for the Christian theology. This is the ethical vision of Plotinus. The aim of virtue is, a, is to allow souls to see more clearly. Uh, George Leroux puts it this way. One cannot think in the same way about voluntary descent and the liberty of reascension. They are, in a manner of speaking, two different freedoms. While remaining voluntary, the descent is also necessary. Ascension, on the other hand, expresses the freedom of risk-taking, the sense of choosing or making an effort, and is proportionately closer to a modern conception of freedom. Indeed, this liberty escapes from the determinism of the system, since the soul must struggle to rediscover its purity, meaning not all souls will liberate themselves. Two different freedoms, LaRue says. Two different freedoms. This explains how both the descent of being and its ascent can be simultaneously voluntary and involuntary. What drives the descent, what drives God into what is not God, is the interchange of love and necessity. Love because he brings with it his own love. Necessity because what is not God can only receive it in certain ways, can only receive the form of God's love in certain ways. But it is into this necessary, determined, as it were, world, God's love comes, fills it, and then brings it back. And what drives the return is a combination of love and the power of choice. Choice seen here as the means by which we naturally fulfill the desire to return. Love in the descent provides the voluntary element as it drives the soul toward what is involuntarily attracted to it. But on the ascent, love is the involuntary element compelling the soul toward the good on the fuel of the voluntary ascent of the soul to the good. Now, when placed in this context, the vision of Carpus in the 8th epistle is not merely an insight into the way in which Jesus Christ works in the lives of certain people. Put in the context of the whole Platinian framework that St. Dionysius is working from, this vision is an insight into the basic pattern and structure of reality. 
of the procession of divine energia driven by love to the uttermost self-emptying kenosis in order to draw back to itself all things according to their capacity. The descent of Jesus from his celestial throne stretching a helping hand, the angels cooperating with him, is simply a summary in symbolic language of the entire vision of how the world works. Now, like any good Neoplatonist, Dionysius expects the bewildered sinners suspended half in, half out of hell to receive new insight from the descent of Jesus, the descent of God, the true logos, the true reason, and to shake off their ignorance by grasping towards what they really yearn for, persuaded no longer by the call of hell, persuaded now by the true, the real call of love. The light of Jesus' presence will cure their ignorance and provide the strength of these, that these sinners were looking for in their disordered search for freedom. Dionysius refuses to see the properly ordered exercise of human freedom as destructive of human autonomy. The good to which they aspire is certainly defined for them. It is natural. They have received it. There is only one good to which they can aspire. But, here St. Dionysius reveals he is not simply a good Plotinian Neoplatonist, but also a good Christian. Because for, for Plotinus, the one is the given. The impersonal God, so far removed beyond any number of uh, intermediary levels of being. But for the Christian, the one, the given, the one who has formed us in his image is not just the impersonal force of unity. It is the person of Jesus. It is the loving creator by whom all being and life and wisdom have been drawn out of nothing. So the proper exercise of freedom does not just lead to the perfection of nature in the sense that the human being finds his or her proper place within the impersonal cosmic order. It is the perfection of nature in the form of a personal response to a personal call. Love meeting love. This is the difference human freedom makes. These ideas will also be found in St. John of Damascus, expressed, I must say, rather differently, but nonetheless recognizable. The whole notion of reality is a kind of cosmic mechanism for the exchange of energy, a mechanism for the exchange of divine and human energia, is basic to the Orthodox tradition, to the Eastern Christian tradition. It's basic to how we understand such notions as synergia and theosis. That is to say, of salvation itself. Now, for Augustine again, freedom and necessity are really always at odds with one another. They're always opposed to one another. But in the Dionysian, the Maximian tradition, freedom and necessity are not distinct conditions. They're different operations or modes of the same spiritual movement. The exit 
the proodos, the procession, the emptying out of God's love, and its return in love to the giver. It is an integral part of that process of purification by which humanity is rendered ever more united to God, to the God for whom it longs. It must follow from this that the involuntary is not separable from or irrelevant to the moral and spiritual enterprise. Far from it. Self-fulfillment occurs not in spite of involuntary acts, but to a large extent by means of them, no less than by means of acts that are actually chosen. And conversely, involuntary sins are no less significant in their capacity to retard that process of return to the one who loves us that process of self-realization, then are sins that we will. All of these spiritual raw materials, all our involuntary and voluntary experiences of life, are to be cast upon the consuming fire of divine love. Just how is one to do this? Damascene will help us to answer that question, as we will show in the next talk. And so... In later reflections, will the liturgical, ascetical, and canonical disciplines of the Eastern Christian tradition? Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the OLTV podcast. Every Thursday, we have these lectures, and every Monday, we have Jack's Corner, where I, your host, Tarzan Bonanno, sit down with our founder, Jack Figgle, and talk about the founding of the Orientale Lumen Foundation and the goal to bring together the Orthodox and Catholic churches. If you like what you hear, consider subscribing on Spotify or at our Locals page. The links for that are in the description below. Thank you, and God bless.